Speak to us today, oh God. May we hear your words. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're glad you're with us worshiping here today. And if you're new, if this is your first time, we hope that you had a chance to get connected with someone out at the, uh, at the desk, uh, at the Welcome Center out there. If you didn't, make sure you do on your way out. Uh, we, we'd like to just touch base with you and, and find out how we can serve you or help you in any way. Um, just, just a couple of notes uh, before we uh, turn to Exodus chapter 12. Um, first of all, I just want to say a huge thanks to those who filled in while we were gone. Thanks to Steve Fair um, for uh, just encouraging and challenging us in some powerful ways. I'm so grateful for Frank being here last week to get us thinking a little bit more about missions. And uh, I just want to, just by way of encouragement, if God was speaking to you, make sure that uh, you check in. We have some ways that you can get in touch with uh, UB Global, our, our uh, headquarters with uh, regards to missions, and we want to just let you know how you could be a little bit more involved if, if God's Spirit has been speaking to you. Hunter, thanks for filling in. We're going to kind of pick up where Hunter left off. He did a great job giving an overview of the plagues. Um, I know like in the, in the beginning of the message, he's, he's like, hey, don't tell Pastor Jeremiah I'm using professional wrestling illustrations. You, knew that, you know that those are recorded, Hunter. Like, we do. <laughs> I'm just... I, I, I combed over every word. <laughs> I might have had it on fast speed, but I was listening to it. All right. <laughs> um, additionally, um, I just want to mention that um, I would encourage you to come to our baptism service tonight. If you don't have plans, um, in fact, if you do have plans already, just cancel them because the baptism service is going to be way better. Um, it, it is just always such a powerful time. Um, starts at 5 o'clock. It's going to be at the Kleinhart's Pond. The address is in, in the bulletin. Uh, join us there. Bring a dish to pass. Bring your lawn chair. And we'll start off by, by eating a little bit. And then, um, then we're going to have a chance to just celebrate um, baptisms of both young and old and, and just begin to just enter into that celebration of that, that newness of life uh, as they follow in obedience to God through, through, those, through baptism. And so I want to just invite you and encourage you to be a part tonight. It'll be a great time of celebration. And then um, just as a, as a little plug, um, my wife and I had a chance last night to see the movie Sound of Freedom. And I, I usually don't do plugs for movies or anything, but if, if you haven't had a chance to see that, make sure you put it on your um, to-do list. It's, it's really a powerful challenge um, and a reminder to God's church of the kinds of things that we need to have our eyes open to, uh, and it specifically deals with human trafficking and um, just the, the prevalence that we see in the world today, and um, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on how we can be a part, and they give you some good action steps on how you can, how you can do that uh, at the end. So I want to just encourage you to um, get a chance to check that out uh, if, if, you're, if your time allows. If you haven't already done so, I'd like you to join me in Exodus chapter 12, where uh, the passage that Rick read to us. And as I know it's been a few weeks since we were in Exodus, and so we left off with the first nine plagues, and we see systematically as the might of God is, is, is just showing Pharaoh that he's the one true God as they systematically uh, directs attacks, what seems to be directed attacks at the Egyptian deities, and uh, revealing himself as the the one and only God. And, and we see Pharaoh in this cycle of like, yeah, maybe I should let him go. And then his, his doubles down. 
His heart is hard against God. And as we come to the, the final plague, the tenth and final plague, it's not an exaggeration to say that this, the Passover, is one of the most important biblical symbols as it foreshadows our own salvation through Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that the most important religious day for Christians, Easter, is entwined with the most important celebration on the Jewish calendar, that of Passover. As we come to this final plague, it's, it's a striking text. You realize the seriousness and the somber nature of what is about to happen. You, you heard it as, as, as Rick shared that with us, that the Lord is about to send the destroyer through the land and Every home in which the blood of the lamb is not applied to the doorpost, the firstborn in that home is going to die. And all of a sudden, all these other plagues, which were catastrophic in themselves, the, the, the Nile to blood, frogs everywhere, locusts, hail, all of it pales in comparison with what is about to happen. You see, as we, as, we, as we read that text, that God has some very specific explanation for how this is supposed to go. In verse 3, he designated the specific day. In verse 4, we see that the head of the household was to select a lamb or a kid based on the number of people that would be represented. Verse 5 reminds us that this animal needs to be a year-old male that was without any defects. Verse 7 tells the time the animal was to be slaughtered. Verse 7 tells us that the, the blood of that animal needs to be applied to the doorframe of each dwelling. Verses 5 and 8 describe the, the preparation, and even as you go on into verse 9, uh, verse 10 tells you what to do with the leftovers. Verse 11 explains that the meal was supposed to be eaten with an air of haste and expectancy. And so there was some very clearly delineated expectations that went along with this Passover celebration. And, and if we were to read the whole chapter, we find out that everything unfolded exactly like God said it would. In verse 29, it says, Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. I don't think that any of us have a category for what happened that night. Some of you have seen some awful, awful things. Some of you have experienced the loss of a child. But to enter into the devastating ramifications of not listening to God's commands, to enter into that, the, the suffering and wailing. In fact, it says in verse 30, During that night, Pharaoh got up along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. Let that, let that significance sit with you for just a moment because it, it rattles us. It, it reveals just how serious 
It was for Pharaoh to set himself up against God. It reveals just how serious sin truly is. The entire land received a death blow because of what happened there that night. But God kept his word. What he said happened, did happen. Every Jewish family that put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and their, first, their firstborn sons were spared. The Egyptians did not fare so well because they didn't obey God. In fact, this is, the term, this is where the term Passover comes from. The destroyer passed over the homes where the blood was present. At the end of the day, though, we, as, we, as we settle down and sit with this story for a moment, we have to be honest that this is a, this is a wild story. And it, and it doesn't really make sense without a, a little bit fuller explanation of Scripture. The context of the Word of God and understanding a little bit about the ancient Near East. So if you're taking notes, the second thought here is, is we're going to look for a moment just at the story behind the Passover. And there's a story in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to invite you just to flip over there if, if you um, are willing. Well, even if you're not, just do it anyways. <laughs> You'll be glad you did. You know what? I always, I mean, you know this. It's always just a good reminder from time to time. I encourage you to have your Bibles open to make sure I'm not making this stuff up. I want to say what's in here. And so uh, if what I'm saying doesn't line up with what's in here, come, come talk to me. I need to know about that. Uh, but that's my intention and my heartbeat as I prayerfully study the Scriptures and, and, and long to share them with you. And in Genesis chapter 22, we come across another story that troubles us. That's, that's just as wild, that's just as heavy. And if you're drawn into this story, you, you're, you're sort of sitting on the edge of the seat with bated breath. And if you know the story, you know that this is the place where God, God calls Abraham. He calls out to Abram and he says, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain. And in verse 2, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What a, what a shocking statement. It, it, it's, it's what we're finding in, in Exodus chapter 12. What? You're going to require a life? What did Isaac ever do? What, what was the big deal here? Why are you asking Abraham? There's so many questions that we come up with as we, as we hear the command of God in Genesis chapter 22. But in the ancient Near East, they understood this. Already at this point in Genesis, we've gotten little inklings of it. But th there, is a, there is an image that has for sure settled into the heart and minds and the idea of Abraham and his people. And would have been commonly understood is the idea of substitution. The idea of when there's a transgression, in order for that sin to be covered the only way for the sinner to live was for his guilt to be passed to another. Even Isaac, as a child, understood this concept. If you look in verse 7, as he's going along with his dad up the mountain, Abraham has the fire, verse 6 says. He has the knife, and the two of them walked on together. What a heart-wrenching walk. And Isaac looks up to his father, and he, he says, My father... 
The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Even Isaac as a child there understood the concept of a sacrifice, the concept of guilt being transferred to another. And Abraham understood enough about sin to know that the the one true God could ask him to sacrifice his son, and he wouldn't be asking for anything that wasn't just. What a heavy, heavy story. I just, I cannot imagine, if you've, if you've ever been to Israel, you, you've, and you've been to Jerusalem, you've been to Mount Moriah. You, you, Jerusalem's built on Mount Moriah. And we don't know exactly how far they journeyed, but even, even just the journey from the base of the, the hill up to the top of the mountain, can you just imagine the gut-wrenching agony the questions that are rolling through Isaac's mind and wondering why his dad has tears running down his beard. And they get to the place, verse 9 says, that God had told him about. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out and he took the knife to slaughter his son and you're on the edge of your seat, and, and you're imagining the agony that this parent is going through. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What we see through this story, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different layers that we could go into but what we see here is that, that sin, sin brings about death. The consequences, Romans 6 reminds us, of sin is, is death. We walk around and we sort of think, like, it doesn't matter who we are, whether you've been a Christian a long time and you know these truths, but it's easy to slip into a mentality where we sort of shrug sin off. Like, it's not that big of a deal. If I didn't hurt somebody, if I didn't break any serious laws, eh. It's easy to start to just kind of drift away and sort of define sin my own way as like I messed up a little bit or I probably shouldn't have done that. But we, what we, we often ignore is God's perspective, which, I mean, he's the one that defines sin. He's, it's, it's violation of his character. It's going against who he is and what he has said. It's disobedience, direct assault against Almighty God. And it's easy for us to see in others. And it's easy for us to pass judgment on others. But we so often excuse ourselves or sort of say, ah, it wasn't that big of a deal. But what Scripture teaches is that the penalty for sin against God is death. For some of us, this seems too harsh. And in that case, we don't understand God's holiness. For some of us, we think we're not so bad as to be included in that number. I wonder if, if, if we had a chance to do like an honest poll, an honest, maybe anonymous survey 
How many of us think that, that we came into this world as sinners and we have sinned in such a way against God that we deserve death, eternal separation from God? I wonder if we understand the gravity of sin and disobedience. One of the things that we miss, I think, in the story of Exodus 12, to, to bring it back there, is that the same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, He also visited the home of every Israelite with the stated purpose of putting their firstborns to death too. The only reason that none of the firstborn sons of Israelite household died was because of the blood of the Lamb. The only reason that Isaac did not die upon Mount Moriah is that God provided a substitute. You begin to see the significance of the Passover. What God required there on the doorpost was the blood. Verse 13 says, The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood I will pass over you. Why did God do that? Like, why couldn't they have just tacked a $100 bill on the doorpost or bake a cake and leave it on the doorstep? Or, uh, when you go around to so many religions uh, and, and you see various temples around the world today, especially Taoist uh, temples and, and um, in, in, the, in the east, you'll, you'll see uh, these, these offerings to their ancestors and to gods, and, and often it includes things like this. There'll be food and some of their favorite snacks and even money. Why didn't God accept something like that? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Only death can satisfy the requirement of sin, the penalty of sin. One writer says something about the blood satisfied the demands of God's perfect justice so that he no longer found it necessary to exact judgment upon the Israelites. The blood guaranteed the safety of those behind the doorpost. The blood guaranteed salvation. And God's people believed his promise that under the shed blood and within those houses, they would be secure and immune. So all those who obeyed God and put the blood on the doorpost were saved. The spotless lamb became the substitute for the firstborn. Did you catch that? what it said in, in verse 29? Verse 30, excuse me. Throughout Egypt, there wasn't a house without someone dead. In every home, Israelites included, there was death. Either the firstborn son died or the substitute lamb died. There was no getting around this. And every firstborn son in those Hebrew households would have been well aware of what took place, just as Isaac understood the necessity of a sacrifice, even as a child. Every firstborn child in those Hebrew homes understood that lamb died so that I didn't have to. 
That lamb took my place. God's justice and wrath was poured out upon that lamb so that I could live. They probably didn't have to sit down and explain that. Everybody understood that the lamb shed his blood so that the firstborn could live. You know where we're going with this. You see, when we come to the New Testament, what we see is the one true Passover lamb. The one true Passover lamb. There's a reason why that night became such an important night of remembrance and significance for the Jewish people because of what would take place nearly 1,500 years later. One day there was a prophet who looked up to see a man walking down the road. And I imagine in a loud voice with arms lifted high, this prophet looks at this average-looking man strolling through the dusty streets, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, John the Baptist knew exactly what he was saying when he said that. He wasn't pulling a name out of thin air. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't just trying to create a title for Jesus. He understood through God's sovereign, revealed grace that, that, that this one was the one true lamb, the once-for-all lamb, the lamb that would truly be able to pay not just for the sin of the firstborn, but for the sins of the world. A once-for-all death. And everyone paying attention would have understood his message. Look, you know the lambs we've been slaying year after year because of our sin? Here's a lamb, a perfect spotless one, who's going to once and for all take upon himself our sins. Here's the final lamb that ever needs to be slain. You see, that first Passover wasn't sufficient. As crucial as this meal was to Israel, and, and, and is still today to the Jewish people, it was still not sufficient. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. It was a temporary offering, a temporary covering, but, but animals could not do what needed to be done to rescue us from being eternally separated from God. You and I, we discover that as important as that lamb was, we need a, another lamb. As important as what the Jewish people did through those sacrifices, it was not sufficient. Their bondage in Egypt was great, but their bondage to sin was greater, and so was ours. We're in the same boat. We need a lamb to set us free from the bondage of sin and certain death. I love what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. 
Some of you may have a lot you feel like you could bring to the table and offer for your redemption. Maybe some of you are fairly wealthy or you have some decent possessions that you feel like would be a good bargaining chip with God. And he says, listen, none of that, n- none of that will buy our freedom. None of that will make a way so that we can be right with God. We were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with one, one thing and one thing only, the precious blood of Christ, the unblemished and spotless lamb. This morning, my brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to just, just redirect your gaze to Jesus. As we see the significance of what happens here in Exodus chapter 12, I mean, what a, what a roller coaster of a day, hearing the death wails from Egypt and feeling the weightiness and the, the, the agony and the, the sorrow along with them. But, but also knowing that God was in the process of setting them free from their bondage to slavery. They were, they were getting to set, after 400 plus years, they were getting to go, to be free, to have the shackles torn off. And if you read through even as they're leaving in the next, uh, next chapter, you see that they totally plundered the Egyptians on their way out. God told them to, and they just took silver and gold, and, and they were just... They came out of there a much wealthier people. They started off as slaves and left fairly wealthy people. But as amazing as all of that was, it wasn't sufficient. I'm so glad that we're not slaughtering Passover lambs anymore. We don't have to go and, and try to figure out how we can go through the steps to to atone for our sin and disobedience. All the while knowing that even that is not going to get the job done, that there's more necessary. See, these Old Testament believers, they, they made those sacrifices in faith, looking forward to, to a final offering. They understood that something was coming. It, it, was, it was clear or unclear, and it was murky early in scriptures. You heard things like Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, and, and later on, as, as God made his covenants with his people, you got little inklings that there was one who was coming who was greater. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than Abraham. He was greater than David. He was greater than all the prophets. And finally, he came, and it was Jesus God himself came to earth to be that substitute and that sacrifice. He came to be the spotless lamb, the once for all sacrifice, the perfect son of God who could make a way to abolish the sacrificial system. Read Hebrews to read more about that. Let me close with this. On the night before he went to the cross, Jesus was meeting in the upper room with his disciples. And they were celebrating a meal together. What was the meal they were celebrating? It was the Passover. It was this very same feast that commemorated the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. But this Passover was different. There are several things that are supposed to be at the table supposed to be bread, and the bread was there. And Jesus picked up this bread, and he broke it. 
And he didn't say what they normally would have expected him to say, something like, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free. Let's remember. No, he said something different. What did he say? This bread is my body. And it's broken for you. That would have been unsettling. That's not something that you were supposed to say at Passover. He's not following the script. What else is supposed to be present? There's, there's the wine. And Jesus picked up the, the wine, and as they prepared to drink it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. All of a sudden, their mind's racing with Old Testament illusions. He's talking about covenant, the new covenant. Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about where God's going to write his law upon their hearts and, and give them a, a heart of flesh and remove their heart of stone, and he's going to be with his people. Their, their minds are racing to all these things they would have learned as kids. And then he equates it with his blood? What's he talking about? But the chief question that had to be running through their mind is what was missing from the table? The most important, or at least, at least the most significant feature of the Passover meal was not at the table. There was no lamb. Disciples certainly had to have wondered, what kind of Passover meal is this? There's, there's no lamb. It's because the lamb was already at the table. No longer was that year-old quadruped going to have to die. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was there. And it's like Jesus was saying, tonight I am the lamb. My death is the most important event in which all of, towards which all of human history has been moving. God's relationship with the world will forever change. As tonight I give you the ultimate salvation that Moses sought. When God delivered Moses and the people, he said, I'm delivering you out of physical slavery. But you need something more than that. You need the blood of the Lamb. My brothers and sisters, this is, this is what it's all about for you and me. It's about Jesus who came to this earth to give himself as a sacrifice to, to take our place. And through his death and resurrection, unite us to himself to bring us into God's family. See, the incredible thing is that, that and, and we go on and on about how God didn't just Make this transaction, like, I'm giving Jesus, he's going to take your place, you get life. Good for you, this is, this is great news. But even more than that, the Bible teaches us that he's, he's united us to Christ. The Bible uses the picture of baptism to show us how we've been united with Christ in his death by going under the water and through his resurrection, by coming up out of the water, we're, we're part of him now. And the life of God is in us through his Holy Spirit. It's better than we could have ever imagined. 
It's better than any script writer could come up with. But it's all because of the Lamb. This morning, we have the opportunity to, to celebrate communion together. Some of you who are like uh, a ritual and tradition are like, hey, this is not the first Sunday. What's going on here? Well, I'm studying this week, and like we can't not celebrate communion after talking about this. So we're breaking script. I hope this is not too crazy for you here. Um, you'll get over it. <laughs> As we partake of the bread and the juice together, let our minds just settle on, maybe as best we can, the elation that God's people felt as that lamb took their place. As mom and dad woke up and ran to the bedroom of their firstborn and saw them still taking breath and fell down on their knees in worship, weeping with joy that God had spared them because of the blood of the lamb. Know this morning that you are part of God's family. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, the blood of the Lamb has spared you from eternally being separated through, from God. This morning, if that's not you, I, I want to invite you and welcome. Don't let another day go by without embracing Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for you, the one who conquered death by rising again from the grave. Embrace him in faith, and we'd love to talk to you more about that up front. Just a moment here. I'm, I'm just going to give us an opportunity to just silently worship God and just have a, just have a conversation with God uh, about what's in your heart and get a chance to just reflect on his goodness and grace. But our, our worship team is going to lead us in a song, and we just want to invite you to come on up. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've embraced the Lamb, we want to invite you to celebrate this with us. Um, I believe over here at this station we have some gluten-free bread. Uh, if that's uh, necessary for you, you'll see the offering plates there. That's for our benevolence offering. If you feel led to give over and above your, your normal uh, gifts to, to God's people here in God's church. Um, communion isn't just a ritual. It's not just something we go through the motions because we're supposed to, but it's, it's a chance for God's people to reflect upon the finished work of Christ and a chance for us to take Christ in and, and, and reflect on his, his goodness to us, his grace that strengthens and encourages our heart. And I just want to invite you to, to join with us in celebrating that after a time of prayer. Let's, let's just take a moment and bow our heads. God, you are so good to us. We recognize that we came into this world as, as those who are separated from you because of our sin and, and undeserving of your goodness and kindness to us. In your mercy, you made a way for the Israelites to be saved. You, you made a way 
through the shed blood of the Lamb. And God, this morning we rejoice that you have made a way for us to be right with you, for our sins to be forgiven. We thank you for Jesus and his work upon the cross. Lord, I pray that we all would embrace and rest in his finished work and and hold fast to Jesus today. I pray that you would remind us that it's not through our efforts and works, it's not through what we can contribute to make our own way, but it's only by following your way through the blood of the Lamb, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did as our substitute that we can be right with you. We celebrate that at your table today, oh God. Would you nourish our hearts and souls as we partake? And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Long 
Oh 
God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep and the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, may he equip you with everything good in order to do his will, doing in us what pleases him. Glory is his into the ages and the ages. Amen. Love you, church. Oh.